Here we are, uh, fourth part of the series, What are Baptism and the Lord's Supper? And I do not have much time, so we're going to go very quickly, and we're going to talk about Baptism and Lord's Supper. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and then we're going to read that, and then we're going we're to turn back over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So if you find 1 Corinthians, uh, put a finger there, chapter 12, and then a finger there in chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible right there in front of you in the pew. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're thinking about baptism and Lord's Supper, maybe uh, talking about this in a little bit of different way than you've heard about it before. Maybe we try to make arguments and things like that, but I kind of want to give us a big picture of baptism and Lord's Supper. A lot of this stuff, if you've been in the new member class, you've probably heard me say it before, but 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that doesn't mean you can leave, but I'm just saying repetition is good for education. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. It's a spirit with a capital S that's talking about the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13, let me emphasize it. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. For the body does not consist, verse 14, the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Now flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. So obviously I'm talking about baptism there. And now we're going to look at the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. Maybe your Bible says there's one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. If I was going to just sum up what I want us to gather from this sermon, uh, I came out of this little book right here, a statement that I thought was so profound by Bobby Jameson, writing a book called Understanding Baptism. He said, in baptism, and you can write this down, it's helpful. In baptism, the one becomes part of the many. In baptism, what does someone do when they, when they come and they become baptized? or, or uh, whenever they believe in Jesus Christ and are saved and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's a person, one, becoming part of the church. It's their entry into the church. Not, their, uh, not that the physical baptism saved them, but the physical baptism is a sign that points to what happened on the inside, which says they are believers now, and they're desiring to become a member of our church. We baptize them, they become members of the church. The one becomes part of the many. And then in the Lord's Supper, the many become one. 
So in baptism, one becomes part of the many, a member of the body. And in the Lord's Supper, we really see how all the members become one. I remember my grandfather telling me a story about men way back, over 100 years ago, who used to play practical jokes on each other when the railroad came through Wise County where he was growing up as a boy. And he said that the railroad company had their engineers come through and they had these little stakes with flags on them. And they were staking out where the railroad was going to go and where the easements were going to be for the railroad through Wise County. And so they had the little stakes and the little flags on them. And there was one man in particular, uh, as everyone was excited about the railroad coming in, and everybody was talking about the railroad's going to be here, and the railroad's going to be here, and this is so exciting. There was one guy that couldn't stand it. He did not think they needed a railroad. He did not like progress coming to the county. He didn't want the railroad, and he let everybody know it. So one night, the jokers went out in the middle of the night, and they pulled up a bunch of those little flags. And they went to that man's house. And if you can imagine, if this was the front of his house and this is the back of his house, they just put a row of those flags right up to his front door and then right out his back door. So when he woke up the next morning, he realized, or was afraid, I guess uh, uh, was tricked, but he believed that the railroad was going to run right through his house. And so they thought that they were really funny uh, by playing a trick on this man. And when he told me that story, I thought, well, why? Why would they do that to that poor man? You know, why would they trick him like that? And then as I've gotten older, I've realized, you know, there's a few people that I've known myself who need some railroad flags in their front yard. And those little flags, though, what were they? Why did they put those flags out? Maybe you've seen when the, uh, the, 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 the gas company or electric company comes and puts the little flags, you know, the little flags to show where the pipelines are, where the lines are. Uh, why, what are those flags doing? Well, they're marking something. They're marking things off. It's a, it's a way you can visibly see what is invisible. You can't see the pipeline. That's not visible to you. So they put the flag there so you can see this is where the line is. This is where the railroad will be. They visibly mark off a boundary. There are boundaries that are defined. This is railroad property, and outside of those flags, this is not. You can think in some way fences do the same things. I can't see your title. I can't see what you own and what you don't own. But when you put up a fence, then I can see what you own and what you don't own. I can see that what the fence does is it tells me, here's, as far as title is concerned, here's where your property starts, here's where your property stops, here's where someone else's property begins. Markers, visible markers that identify things. This is inside the property line. This is outside the property line. Well, did you know there are visible markers that identify the people of God that tell us, here's who's in and here's who's out? And what I mean by that, there are things that churches do, and sometimes they're biblical and sometimes they're unbiblical, that, that you can see and evaluate, and they will indicate that this is a people of God. This is a true church, or this is not a true church. These markers can tell us what people believe, what kind of church it is. And as our graduates are headed out, you know, headed to Lubbock and Stephenville and Wichita Falls and College Station and who, uh, undetermined uh, military bases and San Angelo and, 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 and to work and all these different things, you know, they may be faced with a question they've never had to answer before. Where should I go to church? 
What kind of church should I be a part of? And so we look for these things that will tell us that this is a true church. We want to see what the church believes. What do they teach? Are they rightly preaching the word? Do they proclaim the true gospel? Are they able to stand up and say, here's the problem? And are they able to tell people what the solution is? Are they able to tell people what rightly does save a person? Are they able to say, here is who Jesus is, and here is who, what Jesus has done for you? How do they relate to one another as members? How do they hold one another accountable and disciplined? The understanding. Do they have a right understanding of the purpose of the church? Are they a disciple-making church? Are they a fellowshipping church? That really, uh, Charlie, I appreciate what you said, that, that you experienced fellowship uh, when you came to this church. That's important that we are so living a common life that we're so identified with Christ that we seem like one unit here, all loving and living that common life. And are we serving Jesus together? Are we giving up our lives together with one another for the cause of the gospel, to serve others, our neighbors, and to serve God. But two of the most important markers or outward signs that are practiced by a church are the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, we call them ordinances in the Baptist church because Jesus ordained them. Jesus said, these are the things that you do. We don't call them sacraments and sacrament, uh, is the word in itself is not a problem. Sacrament just kind of comes from the word that means mystery that's been revealed. But we understand there's kind of an ordinance view that we take, a memorial or symbolic view, and then there's a sacramental view of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Churches that have a sacramental view of baptism and the Lord's Supper would say that there's some grace that's given, some, something that makes you saved when you take the elements or when you're baptized. They'll say, if you want to be saved, if you want to be right with God, if you want to be forgiven, uh, then you have to participate in these two things, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We don't teach that. We teach that you're saved by the grace of God and nothing else. Solo grace. Only grace. And if you go to a church, kids, when you guys get out there and you go to a church, if they're preaching to you anything other than salvation by grace alone, through repentance and faith, it's saved by grace through faith, but if they're teaching anything other than that, you need to run the other way. Because we're saved by... Baptism doesn't save you. Being a member of the church doesn't save you. Taking the Lord's Supper doesn't save you. Coming to church doesn't save you. What saves you is the grace of God alone. And so we, we don't practice, we don't call them sacraments because a sacramental view would say these things are necessary for you to be made right with God. And we don't teach that because we teach that it is by grace alone that we're saved through faith. There's not a work that you can do or you might have some reason to brag about the things you've done that have made you acceptable to God. God doesn't let us do that, does He? He says all you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. And so we trust in Jesus Christ alone, not in anything that we might do or that the church might do for us, but we trust in what Jesus Christ has done alone. That's the true gospel. And so we call those, uh, that we would say maybe that's the memorial view, that's the symbolic view, and we don't call that a sacramental view, but what does this participating in baptism and what does participating in the Lord's Supper do? 
Well, just like those little flags marked something off, baptism and the Lord's Supper are a way to show people that we're marked off, that we're the church, that we're separate from the rest of the world. We're distinctive and marked off from the rest of the world. That's what happens when we baptize somebody. We, we, we're not saving them when we baptize them. But what we're saying as a church is we're saying, we think your profession of faith in Jesus Christ is real. As best as we can tell, we don't have all the facts. God has all the facts. He knows what's going on in your heart. But as best as we can tell, your profession of faith is genuine. And so we, if we didn't think you were saved, would we baptize you? No, we wouldn't baptize you. So what we're saying as a church when we baptize you, as we're saying, we believe that God has done a work in your life, that he has saved you, that you've gone from being lost, and now you're found. And we're baptizing you, and we baptize you, that's a visible sign that you've been marked off from the rest of the world, that you've been saved, and that you belong to God. You're one of the people of God. And then that baptism also serves as kind of an entry marker in the life of the church. You're part of the church now. Not just of the huge church of every believer for all time but part of this local church as well and so we mark someone off we 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 say when we take the lord's supper uh, in, a, in, a, in a similar way what we're saying is when you're administered the the bread and the juice that's also a way of saying we still think your profession of faith is valid like we did whenever we baptized you and we do that as a church don't we we hand out the elements. Now, do we want people in our church or who are sitting in here who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior to take that, to take that supper? We even ask our children who have not been converted. We, we let them watch that plate go by so they realize some people are in and some people are not there yet. Okay, and, we, and when they see that plate go by, what do those kids ask? Why can't I have that? That cracker looks pretty good. I want a little cup of grape juice. And we say, this is for people who've put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. These are for people that have been marked off from the West. It gives us an opportunity to share the gospel with our children so that they would know what it means. We, we don't give this to people that have not been baptized, who haven't made a public profession of their faith. And we start working with them toward doing that. And we pray that they will really trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord at the earliest possible age. So thinking about these two ordinances, what do you need to look for? I would say the first thing you need to look for is a church that does celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to preach this sermon is we've had some conversations about increasing the frequency of how often we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, in Baptist life here in the last maybe 20 years, it's become more common for churches to celebrate the Lord's Supper more often. When I was growing up, churches did it once a quarter. And we would use, and in our church, we did it at night. So you had not, not only did you have to be there uh, for that one Sunday during the quarter, but you also had to be there at night. And so very, the church that I grew up in, there were probably a lot of people that weren't even taking the Lord's Supper, and they were doing that because there were so many people there that there was a great chance that the supper could be abused, sort of say, uh, of having people taking it that didn't need to be taking it, so they did it at night. And we did it once a quarter, and the idea behind that was you didn't want it to become rote. You didn't want it to become just a meaningless type of ritual. But lately... Uh, there's been arguments of saying, you know, it's a very important thing that Jesus has said that you need to do. 
And I said, well, I don't mind us doing it more often. We could do it six times a year. We could do it eight times or 12 times. We could do it once a month. But I want to make sure if we're doing the Lord's Supper that we know what we're doing and that everyone understands what's happening in the Lord's Supper. So I just wanted to kind of preach a little bit about baptism and the Lord's Supper this morning, and I'm quickly running out of time. So first, look for a church that celebrates these things, that understands what they are. You might go to a church that does baptism and does the Lord's Supper, and when you get there, you realize they're not even preaching atonement. They're not even preaching the true gospel. The only true gospel that happens in some churches is that they do take the Lord's Supper every week, and they proclaim atonement, and they proclaim the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You don't hear it in the sermon. They don't talk about it because they're ashamed of it. But it's interesting that when they do the Lord's Supper, what are we saying? This blood had to be shed for me because of my sin. I had to have a sacrifice to atone for my sin. And Jesus was that sacrifice. Secondly, look for a church that has a right understanding of the ordinances. So for a church that celebrates and then a church that understands them correctly. We, uh, we don't baptize infants here. We believe the proper way for someone to be baptized is, is after they have made a profession of faith and we immer- and do that by immersion in water. Immersion best symbolizes and best depicts what's actually happening in the gospel and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ and what's happening in the life of the believer is the way I should say that. That we have Jesus who lived a perfect life. He died. He rose again. And what I'm saying is I'm identifying with what Jesus has done. I, too, am dying to self and being raised with Jesus Christ. That's what we're, we're depicting as we uh, do this in the water. Now, we don't believe that the churches that baptize infants are committing heresy. We disagree with them. They think we're wrong, and we think they're wrong, or we would do, all do the same thing. But we would say the churches that baptize in a way where they believe that the baptism of an infant or an adult saves them, that that's not okay. So we disagree on infant baptizing, but we, but we want to be gracious there and realize that there are churches that baptize infants that do proclaim the true gospel, such as Presbyterian Church or Methodist Church, will, could uh, be preaching the true gospel and will have a difference of opinion on how to interpret the scripture there on baptism. So we want to be gracious in that area of disagreement, but that's why we meet in different buildings, because we have different convictions about what the Scripture is teaching. But if you go to a church and they tell you, you must be baptized to be saved, well, we would say that that's heresy, because that's not the true gospel. The true gospels were saved by grace, through faith alone. Baptism, what is it? I tell the kids when I baptize them, or adults even, baptism is like a wedding ring. I made promises to Melissa. And when we made those promises, we gave each other rings. These rings aren't my marriage. These rings aren't my promises. But the promises are invisible, aren't they? But the ring tells you it's a sign that points to the fact that man has made promises to another woman that he is going to give his whole life to her until one of them dies. The, the, The sign points to the promises. The same thing with baptism. The sign of baptism points to something you can't see. It's a change of heart. Something that's happened on the inside. And so we do this because Jesus told us to. Jesus set an example by being baptized. And then Jesus told us uh, to be baptized. To go into all the world, make disciples, and do what? Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we believe it's symbolic. It's a sign. And we'd say the same thing about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a memorial. 
Jesus said, do this in what? Remembrance of me. And Paul said that again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Doing the Lord's Supper doesn't save you. Observing the Lord's Supper doesn't keep you saved. It wasn't intended to be a means of your salvation, but it is a continual proclamation of what we believe. And it's a continual sign to others. When we're taking this, we're saying we're the church. We're the ones that are on the inside. We, we believe the people that are taking the Lord's Supper are in God's kingdom. They are a part of God's uh, kingdom. They were painting a picture here of the fence there. Who's in, who's out, what the boundaries are. And to be inside the church is to say, when I'm feeding on the bread and the juice, I'm reminded of the gospel. I'm reminded of my dependence upon food to live. But as I take the juice and the bread, what I'm reminded of is I need Jesus to live eternally. Such a beautiful picture. We're part of a big sermon being preached when we take the Lord's Supper. We're proclaiming what we believe. We're declaring ourselves to be saved from sin by the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus. It's not a kumbaya moment. It's an obedient moment. Because Jesus said to do this. And so we affirm when we take the Lord's Supper, when you put that stuff in your mouth, you're really identifying with the gospel, aren't you? To the point where you're taking it inside of you. And you're saying, I believe this. I believe that Jesus had to pay the price that I might be saved. So I'll close by saying this. And I know I've just given you a lot of information really quickly. And, and let me just say that there's some books in the back of the, the little shelf back there. There's a book on understanding baptism by Bobby Jameson. A great little book. It's, it's only got about 60 pages. Another similar book is Understanding the Lord's Supper. You could grab either one of these books and it will explain the view that we have at this church of baptism and the Lord's Supper if you had more questions. But what I wanted you to understand today in this sermon is that we're saved by grace alone. But the point of when we baptize people and the point of whenever we do the Lord's Supper is to show who's in and who's out. It's a way that we can see those, those boundaries whenever we're observing these things. And I'm just scratching the surface. But I want you to understand what we do here when we baptize somebody. I want you to understand what we do here when we hand out the bread and the juice. Especially if we increase the frequency of the Lord's Supper, I want us to make sure that we are not making a mockery of it, but that we're taking that as a time when we sit down here and we observe that Lord's Supper. It's a time for me to say to you and everybody else, I believe. I'm committed to the profession that I made back when I was baptized. That Jesus is still my Lord, and I believe He's still your Lord. And together, the many are becoming one. One in mind. One in unity, in harmony, in fellowship, and living the common life together. But I wonder today, if you're sitting here, would you put yourself in or out? Kind of like a spiritual hokey pokey here, right? I'm asking you the question. If, it, if there was a marker that said, this person's in God's kingdom, Jesus is their Lord, and this person's outside of God's kingdom, and Jesus is not their Lord. They're their own Lord. Are you in or are you out? Are you outside of God's kingdom? How far away are you? Are you standing outside the door and you've been afraid to come in? 
You've been afraid to be marked off for Jesus and marked off from the world? Imagine a huge fence. One side, God's people, God's kingdom. The other side is all the rest. Where are you? Yesterday, there was a big deal on TV. Did y'all see the coronation? And Prince Charles was there becoming the king, and he was wearing robes. He was wearing robes that were literally made of gold thread that were from the 1600s as they were investing him and, 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 and putting, installing him into his office as the king of England. And you know what I was doing when they were doing that? I was eating fajitas because I don't care. You know why? Because King Charles ain't my king. Right? Okay, I appreciate that. Okay. <laughs> Go America. All right. <laughs> we won. All right, yeah. <laughs> but there's a kingdom over there, isn't there? There's a united kingdom, and I'm not a subject of it because I'm an American, and I'm proud of it. And I'm a Texan, and I'm prouder of that. That's not my kingdom. And so whatever King Charles says, I don't listen to it. I don't do it. King Charles is not my Lord. That's what, king, that's what Lord means, right? It means king. And that's okay. I'm glad that he's not my king, and I'm glad he's not my Lord. But let me tell you, because it, it wouldn't make much of a difference. But let me tell you, it's a big deal if you would say that about Jesus. If you would say, Jesus isn't my king. He's not my Lord. I'm just out here eating fajitas, and I don't care what Jesus has said. You're in trouble. Because King Charles doesn't matter to you and to me because we're not subjects of his kingdom. But there is a king of kings. And you need to make sure that you're a subject of his kingdom. He needs to be your king. He needs to be your Lord. And what we're doing here when we baptize and when we hand out those things, people just think, oh, they're handing out tiny crackers and Welch's grape juice. No, what, what are we really doing? We're saying these are the people that are part of that kingdom. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And if you're on the outside and you're watching that plate go by, you need to think about it. Because one day, the Bible tells us, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He's the king whether you acknowledge it or not. And he's your king whether you acknowledge it or not. He has the right to judge you. He has the right to do with you whatever he wants to do because he's the king. And that's what kings get to do. Kings are called the sovereign. Now, King Charles is not sovereign outside of his own kingdom. But Jesus Christ is. He's sovereign over the entire universe. So you're a subject of his whether you acknowledge it or not. But how wonderful is it to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord? How, how many of us would say the greatest thing that ever happened to me was when I gave up the lordship of my life and I handed it to Jesus? And, he, and I understood when I submitted to his word that he loved me and he knows what's best for me. How many of you are outside of that kingdom right now and you're living any way you want to live? How is it working out? When you go your own way, there's two ways of doing things. There's your way of doing it and God's way of doing it. Are you submitted to doing it God's way? Because that's where the flourishing is. That's where the joy is. That's where the peace is. You don't think that's where it is. You think if I give up my life, I'm in trouble. Because I like to call the shots, but Jesus says if you want to find your life, you've got to lose it. 
And the way that we lose it is we bow the knee to Jesus Christ. I want you to become a citizen of heaven today. I want you to become a subject of the king of the universe, Jesus Christ. I become a citizen of heaven by the grace of God through repentance and faith. And then I come to the church and I say, I believe in Jesus. Will you baptize me? And the church says, yes, we will, because we believe God's done something in your life. But it only has meaning if something's happened on the inside, if something's happened in the heart. Maybe as you're sitting here, you've thought, okay, this is the time. <laughs> I need to be born again. I need that rebirth. I need to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I need to change. I need God's salvation and forgiveness. And maybe you're sitting here and thinking, you know, I'm part of that kingdom, but I'm not a very good subject. <clears throat> I want a fresh filling. I want God to do something extraordinary in my life. What is God doing in your life? How is he speaking to you even right now? Will you resist his calling or will you bow the knee? I want to urge you this morning, seek him while he may be found and trust in Jesus and be saved. Let's pray.